All right, good evening. Thanks for being here. I uh, was downtown this morning and, and uh, ran into a few people that normally attend Lower Town, and they looked uh, afraid of me, you know, like, uh, like they were guilty uh, skipping church at Lower Town, which, which is a good thing. It's, it's a benefit that we have, um, and they're going to all take benefit of having this space here uh, come Super Bowl Sunday. We won't have church down there. We'll actually have it here um, on Saturday night at 5 and 7 p.m. So think about that. Put that on your calendar. So um, so there, there won't be anybody over there on Sunday. They'll all be here. So take that downtown. Um, anyways, looking forward to that. Uh, a couple things I want you to just mentally put in your calendar. You don't have to physically do it. I mean, you can if you're like me and you're super forgetful, do it. But uh, coming up here in April 27th and 28th is uh, the St. Paul Art Crawl. And I've talked about that before. Right when we got started, there was a, an art crawl that happened down here in the fall, and basically what that is is all the, uh, not all, but several, there's probably 10, 15 buildings right down here in the area that open up their doors, and if you do some kind of art, whether it's music, or I've met some guy who invented a new instrument, or you do painting, or anything, they have to open up their studios or their apartment to anybody, or you can just walk right in and they demonstrate their art. Well, um, Pastor Bill, the senior pastor here at First Baptist, um, there was a, a church called, um, I want to call it, do you want to say it now? I don't remember. It was a church plant that started the same time Hope uh, was started by Steve, and uh, they actually started here as well, and, and they're one of the few church plants from that time that are still around. And so they ended up uh, doing this thing with the art crawl, and he said, oh yeah, they actually took a, like a van, like a 15-passenger van, and covered it with canvas, um, like little, little canvases to paint on, and he just drove around the community and said, paint God, paint how you think God looks like, and then they came back here and displayed all that art for the art crawl. And I was like, that's actually a pretty cool idea. I'm not going to do that, but we actually have several artists from Hope Community Church that, so we're going to open up this building uh, to the community. And so we have several of our own artists, and we'll have um, hopefully uh, Hope Hymns up here and a couple other musicians that have their own bands, and then just artists that do their things, and we'll display that. And then we'll do some kind of interactive uh, thing for the community to be able to do. So anyways, I'd love for you to just come check it out and walk around the neighborhood and meet some people. Uh, But uh, our church is sponsoring a big part of that, and so... They're going to say, hey, Hope Community Church is sponsoring this. That's going to get sent out to 4,000 local residents uh, just to say, hey, we, we care about art. <laughs> and we tried to do it well ourselves, and we would like to uh, take part of that and, and help bless the city and show that we care about that. So I'm really excited about that. So again, that's April 27th and 28th. It's a Friday and Saturday. It's open on Sunday, but obviously we will not be able to use this building on Sunday. Um, and then another cool story that came to my attention just this last week, I don't know if you guys know... Um, uh, Aaron Shaw, but he's an intern, and he's been up here a few times making announcements, but he was uh, just kind of doing some church history study for um, the off-road retreat that happened a couple weeks ago, and he shared that this this building, at least the, the church here, church, First Baptist Church that was established in 1841, um, this building was built in 1871 or 76, something like that. Um, this church actually then... Uh, uh, planted First Baptist Church in downtown Minneapolis, okay? So you have First Baptist Church in St. Paul. They planted First Baptist Church in Minneapolis. Well, First Baptist Church in Minneapolis ends up planting uh, a Swedish Baptist Church, which will end up becoming Bethlehem Baptist Church, which is where John Piper was, which is where uh, my boss and your uh, senior pastor, Steve Treichler, was came out of and planted Hope Community Church out of that. And now here we are back in Lower Town at First Baptist Church. So uh, hopefully that circle of life doesn't stop with us here. Uh, hopefully we can, um, you know, Lord willing, in a few years, birth out uh, church plants and, and uh, other locations, Lord willing, if we can do that. So anyways, I just thought it was kind of cool. It has nothing to do with anything. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. So 
We are going through and starting and kicking off the book of Exodus, and I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's not going to be, we will be kind of reading it verse by verse, but it won't be, you know, six verses at a time. It's going to be more chapter by chapter kind of a thing. And, uh, but there are some huge mountaintops in this book that point directly to Jesus. And so that's, I'm really, really excited about, about going through this. And so um, this is what we're doing, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to talk about Moses and the Ten Commandments, and that's what we kind of know them for. Does anyone not know who this is? Anybody? It's probably a few of you. Charlton Heston? Yeah, okay. So Ten Commandments. Um, uh, this version was actually better than the new one with Batman. What was the Christian Bale? Uh, I thought so. But anyways, but I, I know, this is what I think of when I think of Exodus. Uh, this is probably more our generation, but, uh, and I, you know, could still hear Whitney Houston, you know, singing her, her lungs out to uh, fleeing uh, Egypt. And, and uh, anyways, that's, so I have all these images, and, and maybe that's what you think of. And, and there are some really good things that come out of the movies and out of the cartoon, uh, but there are some also things that are just not, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> okay, so, um, you know, Hollywood took some uh, artistic liberties, we'll say, and changed some things, and so we're going to stick to the Bible and what it says, and we'll go from there. So that's where we're starting. We're starting the gospel according to Moses and a study through Exodus, and so I am really excited about this. And so when we look at this Exodus, and, and Exodus just means kind of a mass group of people who, who leave. And so what we're going to see is, you know, they're enslaved, and, and I think it's probably a popular story, and they pass the Red Sea, but they, it's this Exodus out of something. And, and when I was thinking about that, it kind of reminded me of the Oregon Trail, uh, the game at least, if you remember that game, where you always died, right? And, and that's kind of what happens in this, in this story. When they're wandering through the wilderness, like, oh, little Timmy got bit by a snake, like, oh, he's dead, right? That, that happens in these stories. And, you know, Sally gets dysentery and, uh, you know, the, the wagon tipped over. And it just was awful, awful things that were happening. And that's what happens here. But all these calamities happen because people just don't trust God. And so if you get anything out of the overarching story of this is trust God. And I think I have failed to do that when it came to the giving of Hope Community Church. Uh, we were way behind budget. And once we actually made budget, I was like, well, you know, one of these days I'm going to start trusting God. But I'm not I'm not quite there yet, you know, and, and just all these different things. And finding a building, man, we were looking for a building. I was just, you know, I thought it was all, all about me. And then all of a sudden Bill says, hey, why don't you use this space? And one of these days I'm going to start trusting God, but I'm just, I'm not there yet. I don't, I don't praise him and pray. I mean, I pray for these big things, but I don't really expect them to happen, you know. And, and, so, uh, and, and so I'm just like the Israelites. And so hopefully we'll, we'll do that. So welcome to Exodus. We're going to be walking through this. And so I want to do a couple just background historical things. Uh, if you want to fall asleep for a few minutes, that's fine. But uh, I'm a nerd when it comes to these things. So I enjoy this stuff. Uh, so I want to answer a few questions of this. What was the date of the events of Exodus? Who wrote it? When was the book written? And why was it written? So let's just look at the date of this book, uh, of the events in Exodus. And so there's some confusion and, and or maybe some debate as to when this happened. And so the early date or the 15th century date is uh, 1440 BC, and that is usually based off of the genealogies that we have in scripture that, you know, theologians with really big heads land on that date, and then you also, the late date where that one more coincides with Egyptian history and what kind of happened with that, so there's two possible uh, dates where this would have happened, the Exodus, and so um, it doesn't really affect the book, which one was it, but just wanted to throw that out there, so this is um, written and the events that happened uh, a very, very long time ago, three and a half thousand years ago that this would have happened. So 
That's that. Um, who wrote Exodus? Well, uh, this guy did. <laughs> um, not Charlton Heston, but uh, Moses. And, and, and again, there's some debate on this. Did Moses actually write what we would call the, the Pentateuch, or the, the Pent meaning the first five and two books? I don't just don't know what Tuk, Tuk means. Uh, Pentateuch, and so that's the first five books of, of our Bible, or the Torah, um, that the uh, Jews would call that, and so they attribute that to Moses, and, and tradition has said this is Moses, when you study the language in the Hebrew, which I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but they would say that when you look at the, just the language that he uses, that it seems consistent uh, across the board, and so this has to be written by one man, and so uh, they attribute that to Moses, and then also Jesus, and a lot of New Testament authors attribute this to Jesus. Instead of saying the Torah or the Pentateuch, they'll just say the books of Moses. And so when Jesus says that, it kind of is implying, well, maybe Jesus thinks that and believed that Moses wrote these books, and so there's a little bit more weight to that. So John 5, 45 through 47, um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, uh, but do not think that I uh, will accuse you before the Father, your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. Okay, so this is, this is Jesus talking to the, the, uh, uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who everything they do is based on following the law and the law of Moses that we get in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And your hopes are set on following Moses, but he is your accuser. Because in verse 46, he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote about me. But since you did not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so this is when we go look, at, look at this book that was written 3,500 years ago, and the whole thing points to Jesus. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And Jesus makes that claim, and there's so many things, even today as we look at this, and just a connection that says, wow, wow, the whole story and the whole book and meta-narrative of Scripture, it's about Jesus, and it points to him and, and what he fulfills. And we're going to see that Moses is um, a type of Christ. That's somebody who does things and performs things to a certain extent. But then Jesus comes along and does it far greater and far superior. And so we're going to see that when we look at this. Um, okay, when was the book written and why was it written? I'm going to read from a scholar here, Douglas uh, Stewart. And um, just kind of let him answer those questions there. He says, Moses had nearly 39 years to write Exodus. Okay, that would have been his entire time while he was in the wilderness. When he did so during that time period between the Israelites' departure from Sinai, that was the mountain uh, that we just heard about, and then his death and exactly how many days or weeks he spent doing so is impossible to reconstruct. So w when exactly and how long it took him to write them, we, we don't know, and it, it doesn't matter. Uh, we may reasonably conjecture that the first audience for whom he wrote was the second post-Exodus generation. So, so the, the individuals that would have uh, been born in the wilderness but wouldn't have actually been an eyewitness to the Exodus coming out of Egypt. Oh, sorry, I guess he says that. The one that had grown up in the wilderness during the days described in the book of Numbers. He would have written the book for them as that generation was preparing to enter the promised land as a reminder of who they were and what their origins uh, the events and instructions that their parents had experienced had been and what was required of them in the covenant God had made with their parents. If these conjectures are correct, Exodus would have been produced in writing sometime near the end of the 40-year period after the Israelites left Egypt and before they entered into Canaan. That is when Moses himself was nearing the end of his life. So just some information, again, not totally 100% uh, necessary, but for those of you who like that kind of thing and just want to put all the 
uh, ducks in a row. Uh, there you go. So, okay. Let's look at a little backstory when it comes to Exodus, and we're going to read just kind of the first few verses here of Exodus chapter 1, and, and then we're going to kind of go all the way back, because we've got to kind of catch up, because we're missing a lot of history here. If you're here last week, I talked a little bit about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14, and I think that helps, because we looked at some, some things that, uh, that happened to Abram at the time, but it doesn't matter if you weren't here, I'll go back and go through Genesis. So Exodus 1, 1 through 5. And these are the names of the sons of Israel, or Jacob. Okay? Jacob gets renamed Israel by God. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, uh, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So Let's catch up to what happened previously, right? Uh, the world was created. Okay, we've got to start Genesis chapter 1. Um, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'll, I'll speed up. But I, I do want to, this, this may be kind of silly, but, but back in the day, I don't know, when Angela and I first got married, so seven, seven years ago or so, uh, I know we've been married seven and a half years. I'm just thinking when this happened. Uh, she was an accountant for a ministry called Spread Truth Ministries in central Illinois. And they, they had this great thing, and, I, and I've talked about this before, where they had four worldview questions that they would ask people of uh, how did it all start, what went wrong, what can be done to fix it, and what does the future hold? And we would ask those questions. We would just go up to people and just say, hey, we're taking a survey. What do you think about this? And we would listen to their story and what they had to say and their, their, how they're understanding uh, the story of where things came from. And, and nine times out of ten, they would just say, well, what do you, what do you think about it? And then uh, we, would, we would share them uh, what we thought. And, but anyways, they, they had this... Um, catchy way of remembering the meta narrative and and I never did this in front of people thankfully but uh in my mind mentally I was doing this and so uh you can join me if you want but you you don't I won't I won't make you do that but there were when we look at the meta narrative and answering those first first questions the first one they would say was I had to write notes to remember this but there was god creation Harmony. Okay, did you like that? God, God, creation, harmony. And that's the kind of the first part, Genesis 1 and 2, but then bad things happen. And so we have disobedience, consequence, need. Okay, so they sin, there's consequences, and then there's a need, right? They, they recognize, and that's the fall. What went wrong? And then we look at what can be done to fix it, and then we see promise made. And then we see that promise then is kept on the cross by Jesus. And so, but we look at this promise that's made, and that happens here. That happens already in Genesis when we look at the, the covenants that are made with individuals, and specifically Abraham. And so, and then eventually when we look at the book of Revelation, that all things new and then together with God forever. And so that's kind of the storyline of Scripture in a nutshell. And so, in the beginning, God creates this, and then man and woman were naked and unashamed, and they lived in harmony, not just with one another and with, and with humankind, uh, but with nature. That there was not cancer, there were not tornadoes, there were not um, you know, random animal attacks. There was harmony between mankind and nature, and most importantly, there was harmony between mankind and God. That he would walk with them in the cool of the day, and they enjoyed the presence of God. But then the fall happens, and, and we know the story that Eve is tempted by the serpent. She ends up eating the fruit, and sin enters the world, and that's what happened and what went wrong, and then they're kicked out of the garden, and then for hundreds of years, things uh, happen, and people are born, and they, they fill and multiply the earth, and they just become more wicked and more wicked and more wicked until we get to uh, Noah and that story, and, and just the wickedness that was on the earth, and so God says, we're going to kind of start over, and we're going to save some, but we need to 
uh, I need to demonstrate my wrath. And so then it is then transferred into the Tower of Babel. And again, people are uh, multiplying and God has told them, you need to go and fill the earth, scatter all over the place. They say, no, why would we do that? Let's all stay in one place. And you know what? Remember that God that gave us those rules. Why don't we uh, go up to where he is? Let's meet him. Let's be like him. And God then... uh, changes their languages and scatters them all over the earth. And in that story, and I think what, what happens really just starting the tail, L, tail, tail end of that, I really do believe that Abram or Abraham would have been present at that time at the Tower of Babel. It's the very next logical thing that happens. The Tower of Babel happens, and then boom, we get Abram. All right, that he's this individual, he's part of a little tribe, and God says, I'm going to choose you out of all the peoples on the earth, Abram, and I want you to um, start this uh, new tribe uh, of Israel. And so then we have this promise made, promise made to Abram at the time. And God says that your descendants are going to be like the sand of the earth. and They're going to fill the earth. And, and he says, this is, this is great. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I, I don't have any kids. How could my descendants, you must mean, you know, nephews and cousins. You, you clearly can't mean uh, my own children. Maybe he's thinking of Lot, who uh, this is, happens in Genesis chapter 15, which we'll read, but Genesis 14 was the story of uh, Melchizedek and Lot being captured. So maybe that's what he's thinking. But I want to read Genesis chapter 15. And this is the covenant that God makes with Abram. So Genesis 15, 12 to 21, it says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. All right, that's, all right God, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. Or a little spoiler alert. He's talking about Exodus and, and the Israelites in, in Egypt. But he says this is going to happen for 400 years. But verse 14, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And when the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Okay, what are the pieces? What would happen in a covenant? And this would happen uh, even amongst kings, where they would take a, let's say, a bull or some kind of sacrifice, and they would cut it in half, which I know it's gruesome, but this is what they used to do to demonstrate, I'm making a covenant. They'd cut these animals in half, and they'd split them, and the kings then would be arm in arm or hand in hand, and they would walk through uh, these animals that were split in half to show that if, if I break my covenant with this other king, may the same exact thing that happened to these animals happen to me. But that's not what happened here. God does do that. God takes these animals and he kills them and he splits them in half. But he puts Abram to sleep and he says, I'm going to walk through this, uh, through the pieces of these animals by myself. And God ends up making a covenant with himself. In other, in other words, he's saying, if I break my covenant with me, then this is going to happen to me. Right? And it's not going to happen because he's God. And he's saying, right, if, if you enter into this, if I make this dependent on you being faithful to this covenant, then it's never going to happen. So he does this, he makes an unconditional covenant, or excuse me, back that up. He makes a, uh, yes, no, that's right, sorry, unconditional covenant, where there's nothing you could do, nothing Abraham could possibly do to break this covenant. But there are certain conditional covenants. We look at the covenant that God makes with Moses and the law, and he says, you need to follow these laws, and I will be a blessing, but if you break these laws, then then bad things are going to happen. All right, that's conditional. It means that someone needs to do something, not with this one. 
Uh, and then he says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. All right, now again, this is, he's almost 100 years old at this point. And God is saying, I will, I will to your descendants, I'm going to give this land uh, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenesites, Kadmites, Hittites, Perizzites, you get the rest, okay? Um, he, he says, this is all going to happen. They all inherit this land. I'm going to give you all that land. That's the covenant that I make with you. And so um, he makes a promise as your descendants. And so he does. He ends up uh, having a little boy, and we have Isaac is born. And so to Sarah, who's 90 years old, uh, who gives birth to a child, and then we get then uh, this uh, image that we may know the story, may not, but where uh, God sends an angel or, or tells Abraham, you need to sacrifice Isaac. You need to kill Isaac if you really love me, if you believe in me. And in that moment, Abraham must know that even if I kill my son, because God has promised that he is going to be the descendant that is going to carry on this covenant, Abraham's faith in that moment says, even if I kill him, God is going to bring him back to life somehow, and he's going to make this all right because God walked through those animals and made a covenant with himself. But we know the story that doesn't happen. The angel stops him from killing Isaac. Isaac goes on, and he has two kids. He has Esau and Jacob. They are twins that are born. And Esau is born first. He's the firstborn. And then Jacob, he ends up grabbing the heel of Esau as they're born. And Jacob means deceiver. I don't know if you knew that. Sorry if your name is Jacob. And sorry if you have named your child Jacob. But Jacob means the deceiver. So, you know, Isaac should have known. Something's coming, right? Something bad is going to happen with this guy. And, and it does. And so he ends up, uh, through a long process, ends up stealing his brother's birthright. Okay? If you're a firstborn male, you got all the stuff. And he ends up, um, Esau is hungry one day, and Jacob has a pot of stew, and he says, well, sell me your birthright, and you can eat. He says, okay, dumb, bad trade-off there, but he does. And so this is, right, so Esau uh, was a hunter, was a, he was a really hairy, furry man, <laughs> and then Jacob, it was just a mama's boy. I'm allowed to say that because I'm, I'm a mama's boy. And so he gets his mom permission, hey, dad is kind of going blind, can I have permission to, to deceive him and, can, and to get the blessing to be the, to be the firstborn? And so... She says, sure. She makes him some wool gloves uh, for his hands and arms. Like, you got to be hairy if you get, like, some, some wool skin uh, to deceive your blind dad, to trick him into thinking I'm my other son. But he does that, and he gets the blessing. And uh, so the line should have gone to Esau, but it doesn't because Jacob was a deceiver. And so he gets it. And again, just maybe side note, maybe you already know this. A lot of times people look at uh, characters in the Old Testament and they'll lift them up on a pedestal, right? Like, oh man, these are the fathers of our, of our faith. And they were not the greatest people, okay? And especially as we're going to learn about Jacob, Jacob has some issues, uh, but he ends up wrestling with an angel. This image, this angel's like, come on, really, that's all you got? Uh, but he ends up wrestling with Jacob, and Jacob then at this point is renamed uh, Israel, and then Jacob has a lot of sons, and he ends up having 12 sons and a couple daughters who end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. And that whole story, again, you're like, man, Jacob, yeah, he's a had the 12 tribes of Israel named, you know, that's, that's, those are his descendants. But just the story behind all that is crazy. He ends up having uh, four with his first wife, Leah. So Leah, he went and was working at this land, and the father-in-law, the future father-in-law said, uh, what would your payment like to be? And he said, I want to marry uh, your daughter, Rachel. 
And he says, okay, work the land for seven years, and you can marry my daughter. He works the land for seven years, and the, the father-in-law uh, turns the lights off at night, sends Leah in there to be his wife. He gets married to Leah, and Jacob wakes up in the morning and goes, man, holy cow, you deceived me. So the deceiver is deceived, get it? And um, he says, uh, I, I want to marry Rachel. So he says, well, work seven more years. So he works seven more years to marry this girl, Rachel. So Leah, though, is kind of just second fiddle. She's just not important. Jacob really doesn't like her that much, but... She makes babies, okay? And so she, every time she names a baby, she's like, maybe now, maybe now Jacob will start paying attention to me. And so Leah has Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then uh, Rachel, who's married, and he says she is his favorite wife, but she just cannot have kids. And she says, why don't you sleep with my servant and they will count as my children. So Bill... Uh, uh, Bilha, she ends up having Dan and Naphtali through this servant. And then uh, Leah is, stops having kids and said, well, why don't you sleep with my servant so that we can have more, s- more boys? And so, so Jacob sleeps with Zilpah and has Gad and Asher and Issachar. Uh, no, excuse me, Zad, uh, Gad and Asher, okay? Well, then Leah is then able to have kids again, and he, she has Issachar and Zebulun, and then finally Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin, who are by far the favorite children of Jacob. And um, I guess favoritism is bad when you're a dad, and that did not work out well for Joseph. So Joseph, uh, he ends up uh, being kind of a little brat, but he ends up being sold into slavery by his brothers, and uh, he is accused of rape uh, of Potiphar, his slave owner's wife. And it's interesting that he's sent to prison. Potiphar must have known something about Joseph, that he was an outstanding character, and he must have known something about his wife, because why a slave wouldn't have been put to death immediately for rape is beside me. And so he ends up going to prison. And there he interprets some dreams. That word gets out to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has this crazy dream about these really fat, corn husks, and then these skinny ones eat those, and these fat cows, and the skinny cows eat those cows, and he can't figure out what it's supposed to mean, and someone's like, oh, hey, I know a guy who can interpret dreams, so they get him out of prison, he interprets these dreams, and he says, there's going to be seven years of plenty, and then there's going to be seven years of famine, and if we don't start prepping for this now, we're all going to die, and so Pharaoh says, cool, man, sounds great, you're in charge, you rule the kingdom, I'm just going to go do my thing, and so he ends up being the right-hand man, number two in all of Egypt, and he does that. He ends up saving up and builds storehouses to uh, save all of his food. And so when there's famine in the land and his brothers, now his family, Israel, now the nation that's growing, that clan, needs food. And where do they go? They have to go to Egypt. So anyways, crazy story. I'm not going to go into all of it, but the brothers then um, come and they throw themselves down. This is Genesis 50, 18 to 26. Uh, Joseph's brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. And he says, we are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Okay, he's saying, listen, you, you actually meant harm. You sent me into slavery thinking you'd never have to see me or worry about me ever again. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good because, man, if that wouldn't have happened and if, and if we wouldn't have built those warehouses and had seven years of plenty, you wouldn't be able to have any food right now. And so we've saved all these lives. It's, it's, it's okay. We're good here. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all of his father's family, and he lived 110 years and saw the third. I got to sneeze. Sorry, and I don't want to sneeze in all your ears like really loud. 
We're going to make it. <clears throat> That's never happened before while speaking. Ever. <laughs> I think we're good. Okay, I just had to talk about it. Now we're good. All right, verse 23. And he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of uh, Makar, son of Manasseh, uh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is interesting because that oath that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he also said, your people are going to be slaves for 400 years. Like you'd think they'd be like, maybe we should get out of here now before this whole slavery thing happens, but that doesn't happen. They stay there It says, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at an age of 110, and after they entombed, embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Okay, and so that is that. And we see, again, just this promise being made and how that is now fulfilled 400 years after this takes place, the promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then passed on through Joseph and on to the people of Israel and the nation of Israel. All right, so the promise being fulfilled. And so we see here in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6 through 7, it says, Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all of the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increasing in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And so they're right outside of where uh, the Pharaoh would have lived in this uh, little area called Goshen, and they lived there, and they multiplied and multiplied. God was clearly blessing them in their fruitfulness, and they kept growing in numbers. And so God said that was going to happen to Israel and his family. And then, though, we see the second part of what God had told Abram in Exodus uh, 1, 8 through 14. So then a new king, who Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pitom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly, and they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. And the king and then we, here we see the, the, the kind of changes here. We see the cruelty of, of Pharaoh. And he says, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these would have been individuals who were trained in helping women give birth in that area, uh, whose names were Shipra and Pua. So these two women would go to all the houses where women were giving birth. And he says, this is what the, the Pharaoh says to these two women. When you are helping the Hebrew women during the childbirth on the delivery stool, don't, I don't need the mental image here, but okay, I get it. All right, that's happening on the delivery stool. Uh, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Whoa! So that's what he says. And the midwives, midwives, however, feared God. And this is interesting because this is before any of this stuff is written down. The only reason why they knew to fear God is the stories that were passed on to them. And they heard these stories and the covenants that would have been made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And someday we're going to be set free by this God. And they feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. And they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? 
And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Okay, so before we even get a chance to get there, they, you know, we walk in, and they're like, oh, no, we're all good here. Thanks for stopping by, though. You know, appreciate it, right? And so that kept happening, and, and then it says, so God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Okay, so it's just Right? The Pharaoh can't do anything. He can't figure this out. How are we going to stop them from growing and, and multiplying? And that actually backfires, and, and, and more kids are born because of that. But then in Exodus 1, verse 22, we get this from Pharaoh. He says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy. This is a law. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile the river, but let every girl live. And like I said before, everything that we see in these passages point us to Jesus. If, if, if we don't get to Jesus, right, I, today, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've given you, um, you could have heard this in a, in a Jewish synagogue or even a, a Muslim mosque. Um, if we don't get to Jesus, then, then why are we here? And so I want to point us to Jesus in this. And so I want to ask you a question. Does that sound familiar? The decree that Pharaoh says, he says, kill all the boys. Does that ring any bells? And I hope it does when it comes to the birth of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 2, maybe you don't know the exact passage, but it should. I want to share something with you that helped me a lot in my interpretive journey of studying the scripture. And you can do this all, all of the Old Testament with, with the laws, even the specific laws in Leviticus. This is a phenomenal uh, thing. This comes from Scott Duvall's book, Grasping God's Word. Every year I teach a hermeneutics class, which is how to interpret scripture for the uh, interns, and this is my go-to. This is what this is what I go to every single year. And so the the first point there is grasp the text in their town. What did it mean to them? Okay, so when there's a law given to them, for example, do not trim the corners of your field. Right, you're a farmer. Right, when I read that, I don't go, well, uh, I'm not a farmer. I guess God wants me to have a farm, and then He doesn't want me to cut the corners of my field. No, 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 no. That's not what He's saying. But that is what he was saying to them. Don't cut the corners of your field, right? Why? And then he goes on to explain, because there are foreigners and sojourners and poor people in your community that I want them to eat and take care of that. So grasping it in their town and then determining the width of the river. It's just culture. There's language. There's covenant. What covenant are we in? Are we in New Testament, Old Testament, uh, language barriers, right? This river can get thinner or wider depending on how far removed we are from that story. And then you cross the principalizing bridge. Okay, so for the example of, of that story of the, the covering, cutting the corners, okay, what is the principle he's getting there? He's saying take care of the poor, take care of the needy and the hungry, and that's the principle that we live by today. And then the fourth point, which is why I bring this up at all, is consult the biblical roadmap where he says, is, is there anywhere else in Scripture that this law is played out? And so that one, specifically, cutting the corners of your field, we see that in Ruth, where Ruth then is able to glean the fields and take care of herself because, she, uh, because Boaz obeyed that law. Um, that's a big deal. Jesus and his disciples, they go through a field and they eat some of the grains that they pass by. So that's really important. So when we look at even Exodus to say, is there something that happens in these narratives that are pointing me to something else? And the answer is yes. And then the final thing, though, is then grasp the text in, in my town, in my city. What does it mean for me today, 2018? So I want to look at Matthew chapter 2, where he says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, right, the wise men, came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, 
where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, right? So not to, you know, really screw up your Christmas uh, nativity scene, right? But the wise men shouldn't be in it. I, I kind of, I always do that just to be a uh, dork. Um, I actually, every time I see a nativity scene, I grab the wise men and I move them out of the manger because they didn't go to the manger, all right? Um, but anyway, so, so they end up going there and they say, where is this king? We saw a star when it rose and we've come to worship. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Why? Because he, King Herod, he's the Tetrarch. He is the king of the Jews, technically ruling and reigning in that area. And, he's, and these guys are coming and saying, oh, there's actually, no, there's actually an actual king of the Jews who's Jewish. And it kind of makes sense. In verse 4, and when he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, where is this Messiah going to be born? They say, in Bethlehem in Judea, they reply. For this is what the prophet uh, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, uh, which is going to end up being a few years. Right? So they've been journeying for a few years. So Jesus at this time is a toddler, not in the manger anymore. Uh, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they turned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. All right? It's full circle here, right? There was something going back into Egypt. Israel now, the king of the Jews, is going to go back into Israel. Or excuse me, go back into Egypt. And he says, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled that the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Okay, which is amazing because when you get to the book of Hosea, the whole idea of this out of Egypt I called my son is actually ethnic Jewish Israel. Out of Egypt I called my son Israel. That's the context Hosea gives it. And that's where he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. I called them out of slavery. That's the whole book of Exodus. But the book of Exodus points to Jesus. And so why is it that the author in the New Testament in Matthew says, this verse here, out of Egypt, I have called my son, is actually about Jesus. And we'll get into this as we go through this book. But Israel, we got to look and make sure we know what Israel means every time we read the book and the, the word Israel. Talking about Jacob. Is it talking about the nation, ethnic Israel? Or is it talking about Jesus? Because there's a lot of times like this, out of Egypt I have called my son Israel, that Jesus is the true Israel and the remnant of people who wander in the wilderness that follow the commands and covenant of God. And there are people who are ethnic Israel who say, I don't really care, but because I'm blood, I'm in. And that's not the case. And so this all points to Jesus. So then going back to Matthew chapter 2, it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and here it is. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. All right, that's 
Right? That's, that's, it's an amazing correlation that's happened to Pharaoh to stop the Israelites from multiplying and growing. And then we see this, this rage that Herod has towards Jesus, this baby, because he is going to be the king of the Jews. It says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Right? That's, that's it. That's the story. And that's, that's where we're starting. That. That's, the, that's all of chapter one as we get through this and what happens to, we're not even to Moses yet. Right? We, haven't, we haven't gotten to Moses, but we see that all these things that happen in this book of Exodus point to Jesus. And so uh, in closing, I'll actually ask the worship team to come on up here uh, as, we, as we close here. Um, as we look that someone greater than Moses has already come, right? And so we're looking forward, we're getting a lot of history in this book of Exodus, but someone greater than Moses has come. I talked about that and played off of that last week, looking that Jesus was greater than um, um, Jonah, who saved all of Nineveh. He says, someone greater than Jonah is here, and that, and that now uh, someone greater than Solomon is here, and the wisdom, the queen of Sheba that comes and sees Solomon's wisdom. He says, someone greater than Solomon is here, and I played off that. Someone greater than Melchizedek is here, and now someone greater than Moses has already come. Right? That his people have been set free, and the question that I have for you is, are you part of that? Right? Are you part of that new Israel, that part of Israel that has been set free by King Jesus? that we no longer should submit under a yoke of slavery that is the law. He's set us free to be free. That is Jesus. Someone greater than Moses has come and delivered us, delivered his people from the bondage of slavery of sin. And then secondly, God's in control. And I played off this last week a lot of looking at these seemingly innocuous things, these little tiny little acts. And we see that here all the whole time in this book, that all these things are happening, and God is seated on his throne. As we looked up last week with his feet up. He's not pacing around. He's not worried. And someday, all the bad things that happen, even all these moms that lost their children and dads that lost their children, God is going to make all the bad things come untrue. He's going to make everything right, and he's seated with his feet up because he is good and he's loving and gracious, and that is why he sends his son to die for us. We're going to enter into uh, communion like we do every week, and so uh, we have the bread, which represents uh, the body of Christ that was broken for us, and we have the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins and covers uh, the wrath of God that is needed because of our sin. And again, there's nothing magical about the elements, and so uh, if, if normally you don't take communion to other churches, we, we, we welcome that. If you say, I follow Jesus, uh, I love Jesus, and so I'm not going to bless them, I don't need to do anything about it, because my high priest sits in heaven and intercedes on my behalf. I'm not a priest, he is the priest. And so uh, there is a gluten-free option over here, um, and so uh, feel free to do that. So we'll pray, we'll sing, if, sing two songs, and then we will uh, be dismissed. So will you bow your head as we uh, close this evening? Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Uh, thank you for just this, this new uh, chapter that we're entering into as a, as a church, as a, as a body, and even just locally here in Lower Town as we uh, are going to kind of get back into the swing of things now uh, with the new year and, and, and the holidays being over. And so uh, I look forward to that. I thank you for this group of people that are here tonight and their love uh, for you and just wanting to sit under uh, your, the teaching of your word and, and, and worship you by giving and by singing and even now with communion as we reflect on what Christ did. And as we look back at the book of Exodus and as we look forward to what will eventually happen in Christ, 
that, God, we now get to stand here on the other side of the cross and we get to worship you and praise you and thank you. And as we take these elements, God, I pray that we would just be um, uh, introspective, that we would examine our own hearts and lives and sin and confess those things before you and that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, God, it is for you who is due honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.